Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy. Today on the show, we have Dr. Alison Norman, and you're a psychologist, and I'm very grateful that you've come onto the show today to help our audience get healthier and connect with their emotions more. Alison, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you, Stephanie. So a lot of our clients have unresolved emotional traumas. Um, they soothe their emotions with food and they, they describe themselves as emotional eaters. Some of those emotions are around anger. You've done a lot of great work around anger management. How can we process anger better? Well, I think it's always useful to start with understanding a little bit about what causes anger in the first place. So um, in the work that I've done, one of the things that strikes me is that anger is often associated with high levels of anxiety. So um, if we think back to basic psychological principles around the flight or fright response, in some individuals, if they feel threatened, they respond by trying to run away from the situation or perhaps by freezing. Whereas other people have a tendency to respond by wanting to fight back against that situation to protect themselves. And this is usually where anger comes from. So sometimes we see um, a gesture that quite often women will present with anxiety issues because they turn their, their fear inward. Whereas men tend to present more with anger management issues where they perhaps present with anxiety that's directed outwards at the world around them. But increasingly, we're also seeing women who work in professional environments um, presenting with anger management issues too. And this is predominantly due to stress. So stress causes um, what psychologists call cognitive load or cognitive overload, if you like. And this is where our brains are just unable to cope with the sheer volume of information or tasks that we're trying to perform at any given time. So if we think about basic anger management techniques, this could include things like um, changing the way in which we do the work that we're focused on. So um, a very early piece of cognitive psychology from the 1950s found that our memories, our short-term memory, are only able to handle about seven plus or minus two pieces of information at any given time. So if we're trying to juggle tasks over that kind of number, this is going to increase our cognitive load and lead us to become stressed um, and potentially in lead to anger management issues. So by reducing the amount of tasks we try to perform in a day can actually help to alleviate that anger. Equally, things like um, re reducing the amount of multitasking we do can help. So rather than trying to do two tasks at the same time, actually trying to do tasks one at a time instead can reduce our cognitive load and help us to relax more. In terms of thinking more widely about anger, it's important to think about how we use our spare time to learn to relax. And one of the problems in our busy modern lifestyles is that we don't actually have enough time to allow ourselves to relax properly. But there are things that we can do, simple strategies that include things like deep breathing exercises that can be done just for a couple of minutes a few times a day, which can help us to control our anger issues. Um, one of the things that uh, child psychologists will talk about is the need for things like time out in children. So for any of us who have children, we know that time out is a time-honoured punishment for children who are behaving badly. But actually, time out is not about 
um, a punishment. It's actually more about allowing children a few minutes to reset and calm down so that they can then start whatever task it was they were performing again. And this can work well in adults too. So by giving ourselves a couple of minutes in a quiet room where we breathe slowly, perhaps even actually hold our breath for a period of time, this can reduce the anxiety or anger that we're experiencing. Um, Doing deep breathing exercises, particularly before we go to have a bed, can also help us to manage anger more in the long term. But techniques like mindfulness are also important. So remembering to do things like checking in with ourselves regularly throughout the day, thinking about how we're feeling at any given time, um, whether we need anything, are we hungry, are we thirsty, do we need to take a break, are we sitting comfortably? These are things that we often ignore in our physical environment, and these can lead to increased stress and increased cognitive load, which can ultimately lead to anger. That's really impressive. There's so much that I'd like to elaborate on. For example, how women uh, go inwards and men go outwards with their energy and how women in corporate uh, environments tend to express their anger outwardly also. Um, do Do you find that the case with when accessing emotions? Is there a difference between the genders there? Yes, and it's usually um, driven by our sociological upbringing. So um, it is naturally, um, even in our modern society, more accepted that um, boys express emotions outward. So they become maybe angry, aggressive, um, they may fight back if they're being bullied. Whereas those sorts of behaviours are inherently less acceptable in women. So therefore, as women, we tend to focus that emotion inward and instead of focusing outward we start to address what it is about us that's perhaps the problem which can lead to things like low self-esteem and also anxiety about how we're interacting with the world around us and what we tend to see is that women who work in high-powered environments um, that are predominantly male dominated tend to take on those similar kind of emotional responses um, as you would see in men yes and is there any benefit to just physically thrashing out anger, like a boxing class, for example? Can that can physical activity be therapeutic, or is there a better way of, of tackling our emotions? Certainly, exercise has been found to be incredibly useful, and this is in a process known as catharsis, so the raising of endorphins um, around the body and also the increased heart rate is a good way of helping to to alleviate those feelings of um, anger, particularly. Um, But exercise is also useful in many other ways, so it helps our bodies to rest and relax from the cognitive drain that we're placing on ourselves from mental tasks in the day, and helps to clear our minds so that perhaps when we stop at the end of the day, we're no longer focused heavily on those activities that we've been engaged in. Um, but a lot of people put focus on things like perhaps boxing because it is an, an almost thrashing out, as you say, activity. But actually, research has shown that any kind of physical activity can be effective in anger management. So it might be running or team sports or even things that are less physically focused, like yoga or Pilates, that allow the body to relax. And I'll touch on that point of relaxation, actually. Earlier, you said... We, we're so busy, we need to take some more time out to relax, to reset. However, 
a lot of my clients who take that, those recommendations from me find themselves carving out some time to relax and they are physically so fried, they are unable to relax. Is that an indication that maybe they need to seek further help or how can I help them further? Um, indeed, I mean, it is a common problem that if we don't get enough relaxation, it can become increasingly difficult to relax. Um, our, our bodies actually hold an awful lot of tension day to day. And if that's allowed to build up, it can become physically impossible to unwind. There are techniques that can be used for that. So um, there's an, a well-known um, approach to relaxation that, that uses muscle, progressive muscle relaxation, where individuals are asked to tense and relax their muscle groups in turn. So you might start with the hands and work up the arms and then down through the body to the feet. But the problem with this approach is that if someone is carrying too much anxiety, uh, too much stress in, um, inside their bodies, their muscles are already so tense that this can be quite painful. So a better technique to use in these instances are things like um, getting the client to breathe in deeply on the in-breath, just concentrating on their breathing. But then on the out-breath, trying to focus on imagining that tension draining away from the body. And that um, that imagery can actually be incredibly helpful for reducing anxiety um, and to helping to reduce the stress that's carried in the body. However, if those sorts of approaches are ineffective, then that's the sign that perhaps they might need um, more specialist help. Yes, and I often find the language that my clients use is very indicative of, of what they're feeling, and I encourage them to get more connected with their body and their intuition. And if they say things like, I, I can't breathe, I can't... It, it's an indication of the central nervous system and being an overload. And if how do you recognize that you need help apart from that, or if you're just being a bit grumpy? And th there is a shame around seeking help, particularly particularly men. I'll, I'll be bold enough to to come out and say they feel, oh, I'm all right. You know, I'm 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 strong. I'm I'll just I'll sort it out. And they have that attitude of it's weak to seek help, but it's actually, it builds resilience to understand what's causing these emotions on a regular basis. So my question to you is, how do you know if you need to see a specialist or if you're just a bit grumpy? Are there telltale signs, that red flag? Mm. So there is no clear answer to this, but it is important to look at the impact that your, um, your grumpiness, if you like, your behavior is having on your life more generally. So psychological therapies, whatever particular perspective they might take, are focused on the idea of the outcome of your particular problem rather than on thinking about whether you have a condition or a disorder. Um, so if your anger or your, your mood more generally is affecting you psychologically, so it's causing you to feel um, low, depressed on a regular basis, if it's affecting things like your self-esteem, so you're lacking confidence in your own ability, or if it's having more of a social impact, so it's causing risks and relationships within your life, maybe it's standing in the way of goals or perhaps employment opportunities, then that usually is a very good indicator that it's time to seek help. And my advice to anyone would be that it's better to seek help earlier rather than waiting for the problem to get worse, worse where you might actually need more intensive specialist support. So, for example, there are an awful lot of self-help materials out there 
that can be incredibly effective at managing particularly anger issues when they're at a relatively low level. Um, or something that can be quite helpful to clients is thinking about life coaching as opposed to therapy. So life coaching is more about taking the goals that an individual might have and helping them to realise those goals with practical skills-based techniques rather than necessarily focusing on psychological nature. But a life coach's role will also be to incorporate those psychological elements to build resilience, to help people to manage um, their mood and their emotional responses to their environment. Mm -hmm. I often find that most of my clients can compartmentalise and have this facade at work where they're, everything's fine and then when they go home, the anger truly comes out with their spouse. So if there, is, if there are any spouses who are uh, listening to this, if you recognise that your spouse has anger issues, how, how do we approach the subject? So this is a very tricky situation to manage and obviously has to be dealt with incredibly delicately. My advice when I've talked to spouses in the past who have experienced this problem is that it's important to pick a time and a place, um, preferably somewhere vaguely neutral, um, and a time when actually you're both free to talk. So there should be no distractions, there shouldn't be any television, the children shouldn't be about, um, we shouldn't be on social media if we're going to have these sorts of conversations. And then it's about trying to raise the, the issue gently. And it's, it's important for a spouse to have armed at that particular point in time some concrete examples of times when the behaviour has become a problem. Um, because actually it's all too easy for any of us to dismiss our own behaviour as being um, linked to a specific time or event. So actually having a sort of a host of examples that can be provided that show the root of the problem. Um, helps to demonstrate to the person that actually this is more than just a one-off occasion. But the tricky thing is about trying to make sure that the focus remains on them being worried about the partner and wanting them wanting to help them. Um, the moment that conversation starts to become about judging them for their behaviour, then that's the point at which the, the person is likely to switch off. Yeah. If that approach is unsuccessful, then... It's about drawing boundaries to yourself about what you consider to be acceptable and unacceptable and remembering that at the end of the day, you cannot force somebody to make a change. They have to want to do that themselves. Yes, always. And uh, we always like to in encourage looking at yourself and thinking, how can I be a better version of me today? I want to bring my best self to the situation. So um, I, I encourage any spouse who... To, to come and ask for guidance on how to approach these subjects because it, it does it does wreak havoc in the family. Uh, anger left untreated can wreak havoc in families, so it's important to have the courage to seek help. It's um, there's no shame in asking for help. And uh, at Urban Health, we like to design nutritional programs that support a busy lifestyle and that it takes stress into account. And what we eat does have an effect on the chemicals in our bodies and can instigate anxiety and anger. Uh, what is the relationship between alcohol consumption and anger? Do you find that there is a link? Yes, indeed. And this is predominantly due to, to stress as being as the key factor here. So stress is often a cause of anger, as I've previously talked about, um, and Therefore, anger is inherently linked to alcohol because there is a tendency, particularly for people who work hard, 
to, to drink in order to reduce that level of stress. But also alcohol does have the tendency to make individuals behave in a way that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise um, be inclined to do so. So drinking can actually cause anger in that particular way as well. So it's really important for individuals that are feeling that their stress levels may be quite high to recognise the dangers in, in controlling stress with alcohol and instead try to employ some of the other techniques that I've talked about before. So trying to reduce the cognitive load, learning deep breathing um, exercises or other types of relaxation instead. Also, if you're finding that when you're getting drunk, there, there are problems with managing your anger in those kinds of environments, it suggests that there probably are unresolved issues with stress that perhaps you are unaware of when you're not drinking. Um, rarely do people respond completely differently when intoxicated than they would in a normal situation. What we normally see is that their behaviour is an exaggerated version of what they're feeling normally. So perhaps they're feeling angry, but they're not expressing that on the surface. And that's coming out then when they're drinking. We, we have found that when we've referred our clients to therapy services, they have come back with epiphanies. When they finally get around to the root of their anger, they realise that they've compromised themselves so much and then they have to make a big change to make sure that the root cause of that anger doesn't occur again and again. And they make massive decisions like, I'm quitting my job, I'm leaving the city. or uh, And uh, it's, if they have compromised themselves or if they feel like they've compromised themselves all of their lives, left their country to pursue a career in finance. Maybe they work such long hours that they've eroded friendships or sacrificed developing a relationship, or maybe they've missed their kids' first steps. It's a lot of compromise, a lot of suppressed emotion, which can cause anger, compromising their life for wealth. How should they cope with all of that? If they don't have the courage to make the big necessary changes, if they want to stay where they are, are there different techniques to managing anger in an acute way rather than a chronic way, if that makes sense? Mm, yeah, so, I mean, managing anger in an acute way is about trying to think about how you're behaving in the heat of the moment. So I talked previously about techniques like taking yourself away from the situation these are important for, tr important for trying to put a break between you and the situation that you're in at that particular point so that you can then come back to the problem later and actually focus on what it was that caused that anger to erupt at that particular point in time. Um, the old saying about uh, take a deep breath and count to 10 actually has an awful lot of scientific validity that if we can take ourselves from a situation, we're better able to reflect. So thinking about compromise more generally, it's about thinking about the choices that we make are making in our lives because rarely can we actually have it all. Um, it's about asking yourself what it is that makes you happy. So is your job fulfilling to you? Does it make you feel excited, pleased and happy to get up in the morning? So you might be experiencing anger and struggling to cope with the stress of your job but also find that it's incredibly fulfilling and important in your life. And if so, then the compromises that people make are worth it, potentially, for the life satisfaction that they get from their jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's about trying to weigh up that information. If, however, they find that actually on evaluating the situation, 
their job isn't providing those things for them, then that's the time that they need to take a step back and look at those bigger life choices that you talked about. Some of the techniques that are employed by um, acceptance and commitment therapy, a particular branch of psychology, can be quite helpful here. So thinking about what a person's values are in their life. So thinking about different aspects of, of what life contains, so family life, community, um, social um, events, socialising, intimate relationships, or perhaps being a parent as well as work, and thinking about what values that person has in those different areas. Then what can be helpful is to think about each of them in turn and rank them perhaps on a scale from 1 to 10 in terms of how important they are to the individual and how currently much how much currently are they living within the values of that particular area. So if that number if the number of how important it is is very high but how much they're living within that value is quite low, then that's likely to lead to high levels of psychological stress. And there are plenty of ways that people can adapt the way that they're doing things to live more within their values, to allow for um, a degree of compromise between different areas. So people tend to be quite focused on goals, particularly if they're high-flying business people, for example. Um, And goals can be intrinsically linked to our values, but we can also have a tendency to get lost with the goal rather than thinking about the value that sits behind it. So um, a simple example might be that a goal for somebody might be to buy a house, but the value that sits behind that goal might be that they want to be able to provide and look after their family. So it might not be possible for that person to afford to buy a home, but there are still plenty of ways in which they can fulfill the value of providing for their family that doesn't necessarily involve meeting that goal. And it's this reframing, this focusing on values rather than purely on goals, that can lead to a much more satisfied life and build in a degree of confidence with the compromises that we're making so that we feel satisfied that we're doing the best we can in as many areas as possible. Um, one of the books that I recommend to my clients who are suffering from similar kind of difficulties is a book called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Um, it's quite a small um, and concise text, and it's not um, psychologically driven in, in a high, um, high academic way, but it's incredibly useful in terms of thinking about what makes us happy and whether or not we're leading ourselves on the right path to achieve that. I think that's all very, very insightful. And it leads me on to thinking, are you living your own life and you're living by your own values? Or are you living by society's values? Sometimes our clients come to us and they're very slim already and they want to be even slimmer because they've got this idea that they don't look like the girls on Instagram or they don't look like the boys in the men's health cover magazine. Or... and. I find that fascinating, this subject of body dysmorphia. And you've done a lot of work around that, and you've got a... uh, Tell us a bit about your project. Yes, so um, about um, 15 years ago now, I started working on developing an online support tool for people who have appearance-related conditions. So this may be individuals that have an objective appearance difference, so they might have scarring, for example, or they they may have... um, some kind of conditions that alter their appearance or maybe weight-related issues. But sometimes it can be helpful to support individuals who have things like body dysmorphia. So they believe themselves to have an objective difference. For example, 
example, they think they're too, too overweight when actually there's nothing objectively wrong with them. Um, and the tool is an eight-week um, intervention, and it's based on the idea of normalising and um, accepting who we are and what we look like and helping individuals to understand the value of appearances in our society, but also how we can break away from those norms that you discuss, those, those societally driven values about appearance. And instead, utilise things like um, good social skills um, to help us interact with people, but also help us to reframe how we feel about ourselves as well so we can be more accepting of the differences in our bodies that perhaps we're less um, happy with. I think this is very powerful. And for somebody who has a mindset of achieve more, cope better, or if if our clients are in modeling sectors or they're in high-flying city executive, type A personality, competitive, and they're just comparing themselves to, to their neighbors, well, he's managing, so why can't I? And, oh, well, I'm a model. I'm being refused by my agency because my left thigh is half a centimeter too too uh too thick or too too small and it, it reminds me of the work that Hugh Fernley Whittingstall did on the uh, when the parsnips that didn't look perfect were not allowed yeah. to go into supermarkets it's it's a societal condition that we reject imperfection but perfection is subjective anyway I think so um, I'm just so impressed with the with the work that you do Thank you. And you're absolutely right that appearance is actually subjective to a certain degree. Um, the, the phrase beauty is in the eye of the beholder is, is absolutely the case, that we find that even somebody who has an um, objective measurement of the attractiveness maybe that's quite low, there will always be individuals within the society who find them to be incredibly attractive. Yes, and we are increasingly living in an image-conscious world and society will judge you positively or negatively on how you look. And I guess you just need to not care. Yes. And the trick is learning techniques to, to allow you to not care, at least not so much. Yes, exactly. And now onto smartphones. A lot of stress comes from not getting enough quality sleep. And if you have good quality sleep, you can become more resilient, which gives you the strength to make conscious, better choices. How important is it to get away from your smartphone before bed? Mm. So this is incredibly important. So as you say, sleep is absolutely fundamental to our mental health and helps to reduce stress and build resilience. Um, and smartphones can cause all kinds of different problems with our sleep. So it does rather depend on what you're doing with your phone before bed in terms of how much of an impact that might have. So Phones can be positive at bedtime for things like helping to improve sleep through relaxation apps or mindfulness apps or listening to things like calming music. But what we tend to do is less those sorts of things, but instead engage in things like checking emails, um, looking and responding to things on social media. Um, and ideally, these things should really be avoided for a good hour before we go to bed because this is the time that it allows our brains to switch off and unwind so that we are in a position when we go to, to bed that we can actually sleep properly. If we don't have that time to switch off, what tends to happen is that our sleep is quite poor 
and quite often involves um, dreaming heavily about different activities that we were doing usually just before we went to bed. Some of my clients report not having dreams at all. Is that a sign of excessive stress that they're not allowing their brains to rest enough? Um, well, there are, there's a degree of individual difference in terms of dreaming. So dream, lack of dreaming can indicate um, high levels of stress, but equally so can excessive dreaming um, also be associated with stress. And, and some people do naturally just not, well, they do dream, but they don't recall the dreams that they have. Um, so just because people can't recall their dreams doesn't necessarily mean that they're not dreaming about things that they've done during the day. So it might still be having an impact on them, even if they're not aware of it consciously. So a lot of people know that they should switch their phones off and, and have a rest from technology at least an hour before bed. However, they continue to choose to ignore that. Are, are we addicted? Are we too far gone? So um, some people are truly addicted to, to modern technology, from smartphones in particular. Um, but they're also, for some of us, it's just about habits. So phones are something that are always with us. They provide us with different sources of information, different ways of interacting with the world around us, and increasingly so as, as we engage more with smartphones. Um, and humans have an innate drive for information, desire for information, and access to our phones provides that. And it, um, increasingly also provides access through social contact whenever we need it, which is particularly dangerous for people who are perhaps isolated um, from more face-to-face -face forms of social contact, perhaps due to high-pressure jobs and low working hours. So these are the sorts of things that lead us to developing a habit um, of wanting to be on our phones increasingly and can, in some um, instances, lead to people developing an addiction where they physically or psychologically suffer if they don't actually pick up and engage with their phones. But for the rest of us, it is more about a habit. So, um, for example, when you... One of the... A study that was done many years ago looked at... Um, eating sweets in the workplace and they discovered that even amongst um, colleagues who perhaps didn't have a particular interest in sweets if a bowl of sweets was left on the side in an office um, the staff would be much more likely to eat them than if the sweets weren't there at all. Now that seems obvious but actually it's a really interesting point to think about with our phones that they are there all the time so if they are there all the time there is that temptation to pick them up and access them Whereas if we actually use very simple strategies like leaving our phone in a different room, that will actually put a gap between us and our phone and make it less likely that we'll engage in those problematic behaviours. Yes, and I also heard a talk recently saying that our, the way we're interacting with technology is actually rewiring our brain and how we process information, how we make decisions. How is technology affecting our brains? So technology has now been found to affect our brain in, in many different ways. So if, the best way to think about it is that actually our brain is just a simple form of technology, a very complex, actually, form of technology. It's a very large and very powerful supercomputer. So technology can have positive effects on our brain. So it helps us to build capacity, for example, by doing things like outsourcing parts of our memory to um, our devices. Um, and that has the effect of freeing up internal memory in our supercomputers so that we can remember more. Um, it also has advantages in terms of improving the interconnectivity of our brain. 
So um, it's now been found that people who use technology on a regular basis have brains with much more um, connections, which allows them to problem solve and decision make um, in more complex ways and actually faster than ever before. But there are also plenty of ways in which technology can have a negative impact on um, our brains as well. So technology adds to this effective cognitive load that I talked about earlier by providing way too many platforms that we can simultaneously overstress our brains. So we might be sat at our computer, we might have multiple tabs open in browsers, we might have our phone as well, we might even have a tablet too, and those sorts of things will have an effect. Um, and we know that this can lead to the development of um, much more long-term conditions like things like chronic fatigue syndrome, for example. Um, technology also allows us to access a range of information sources in a way that perhaps we haven't been able to do in the past. And this leads us to being more informed of the world around us, which can be positive, but can also be negative by opening our eyes to the horrors that exist in the world we live in. And that has an impact on our mental health as well. Um, and then in terms of physical side effects, we also now know that technol um, increased technology use can have an impact on migraines, um, increase the likelihood of migraines occurring. And there are still um, ongoing research into the long-term effects of things like radiation use, for example, from mobile phones and the development of brain tumours. Interesting. I, I think that's deeply fascinating. You've, you've brought up so many different insights and um, our listeners are just going to absolutely love this and would love to connect with you and book a session. Would you like to tell us your website address and how we can get in touch with you and the sort of sessions you offer by Skype or face to face? Yeah, so my um, my business is called um, A Norman Counselling Services, and it can be accessed at www.alisonnorman.co.uk. That's Alison with a Y, A L Y S O N. Um, so I offer a range of different services. So um, for people who are experiencing psychological distress, I offer a range of different counselling-based techniques um, to help people talk through their experiences and help them to be able to develop better ways of managing psychological distress, um, particularly around things like anxiety management or anger management. Um, but I also have specialty in things like managing um, difficulties around acquired brain injury and also um, uh, appearance-related aspects as well as we've previously talked about. Um, and that can be done through sessions with me or through something like my Face It tool, which is the online therapy that I discussed previously. Um, I provide face-to-face uh, -face sessions um, in Somerset, but also have um, facilities for Skype conversations or for telephone-based counselling as well. Um, and I also offer life coaching too, as I discussed earlier, which is much more about a life skills-based approach of looking at goals and values and how to change the way that we're doing things to be more in, in tune with those things. Amazing. Thank you so much, Alison, for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for your time. Dr. Alison Norman, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring insights and helping urban health in keeping busy people healthy.